0: Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neural Coffee in hand, and it is perfect. I got my new dad's on. I got the official Phoenix t-shirt hoodie on. It's perfect for me. My wife likes to keep the house just a little bit cooler than I do, so it is a perfect thing for me to wear around the house and in the home office. Um, these are going to go out to special people. Um, they know who they are. So please don't ask for them. They're not for sale. I will not sell them. Um, they are gifts. Um, so be looking for that, you special people out there. Um, now, I've got a really good question for this morning, and it has to do with squatting, so everybody's going to get kind of excited about that. Um, it comes from Adam, and Adam says, I love the video on hit, how Hit By R is lost. had a question regarding this and how it relates to the ankle. I know I have a wide ISA, and I've been told that when I squat, I definitely have a bias towards ERing super hard. Um, with that said, my issue is that my femurs externally rotate, but my ankles tend to collapse and feet tend to pronate as well as I get towards 90 degrees or below. Tactics such as a tripod foot don't seem to do much for it. Um, I'm assuming that with so much external rotation occurring, my body is trying to find IR at the ankles as a compensation for the lack of R in the femurs and the hips. Okay. So, Adam, I think you're, 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 I like your thinking, but, but let me give you an alternative explanation for this because I think that the way you described it hints at something that, that is really, really common and a very, very common misunderstanding as to what's actually happening during the squat. So let's talk about what would normally occur as we, as we uh, descend into the squat so we talk about the way that the hip is oriented and the pelvis is oriented as we move through space. And so this early phase of, of hip flexion, so if you're descending in the squat, this early phase would be external rotation. We pass through internal rotation where we get a, a reorientation of the acetabulum and then we finish into this deep position. And chances are, Adam, I'm not picking on you, brother, but, but chances are if you're wide ISA and you're squatting the way you say, um, you're not hitting in range flexion, so we're not going to even worry about that part. But what I do want to talk about is is what's potentially going on uh, with the orientation of the pelvis and then what you're actually seeing at the hip. What you're perceiving is external rotation is actually internal rotation. So so let's talk about that for a second. So if you're a wide ISA, you're going to be biased towards an internal rotation of that that ilium and a nutation of the sacrum, which would put you in a position that looks something like that with with the nutation. I'm exaggerating for effect, of course. But chances are um, again, based on the way that you're describing it, you're going to be anteriorly oriented and you're going to be compressed in this posterior aspect. So as you try to descend, you're not even starting in this in this normal ER uh, position. Um, you're probably not able to capture that. So you're going to hit IR pretty hard and pretty fast. So as you descend, what you're going to try to do is you're going to see this hip going out. And a lot of people perceive that as being external rotation. However, if the knee is going out and you're still descending, I want you to see this really, really closely, if, I, if the knee goes out and you descend, that actually turns you into internal rotation. So as the knee goes out, you're actually capturing the internal rotation at the hip, but you can't capture it in, in an arc that is reasonably close to what we would perceive as traditional flexion. You've got to deviate outward and try to capture it there. So what that's going to do, is going to drive your knee outward, but your foot is grounded, and you still need a propulsive foot to push off of when you're squatting. And so what's going to happen is the tibia is going to be forward on the ankle, so that's going to move you towards a late propulsive strategy in the foot. But if you use relative motion at the, the tailor joint in that position you're going to collapse towards the floor and you're probably not going to be able to get up out of your squat and so what you're doing is you're, you're locking up this, this position in this late propulsive strategy and it's going to drive you that way towards that, that visual representation of pronation which is actually this late propulsive foot strategy. So I think that's what you're seeing more than anything else. So from a strategy wise then what we probably want to do is let's move you to something that gives you a little bit more of that ER strategy at the beginning of the squat. So if I elevate your heel, I move this, this tibia backwards relative to the foot, and that puts us in an earlier phase of propulsion. So this is where you can actually capture some of your external rotation in that early phase of the descent of the squat, and then as you move towards your internal rotation, chances are the squat's gonna get a little bit prettier that way. Um, because you're not able to access this, this early phase of external rotation in your descent because you've given it up with your anterior orientation. Um, now, in addition to that, what you're going to want to start to do is you're going to work on your split stance um, activities with your front foot with the front heel elevated as well because now it's going to keep you in that early phase of that propulsive strategy. Allow the knee to track over the foot as you descend into your split squats. But with the heel elevated again, you're going to start to capture that early phase of of your propulsive strategy at your ankle and foot. That's going to allow you to access the the external rotation at the hip and you're going to start to move through this full excursion uh, of the hip. Throw in some heels elevated Camperini deadlifts and now you're going to be able to capture some of the internal rotation with that early propulsive foot as well. And eventually dropping that heel back to the ground in your your single leg hingey type of activities, um, so we have this full ER, full IR kind of a strategy as you move through your squat. So, Adam, I hope that gives you a couple of couple of clues. I hope it gives you a little bit more understanding of probably what you're doing in your squat. Again, I think this is a really big point of confusion because people see the knees go apart, they go, "Oh, you're you're actually rotating." When the reality is, if your if your knees are going out and you're descending, you're moving into internal rotation. So thanks Adam for the question. Everybody have a great Monday and I'll see you later. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. It is Tuesday, big clinic day. Got to get going here. So we're going to dive right into the Q&A if it's okay with you. Um, This one comes from Austin. And Austin says, a lot of rehab professionals prescribe exercises that are intended to target deep musculature around the joints. Exercises like shoulder extra rotations come to mind. So he's talking about like the, you know, the rubber bandy exercises that they do for like rotator cuff rehab and things like that. Based on your model, could it be that by strengthening the deep muscles, what is actually happening is a greater ability to maintain pressure and volume around the joint and allow relative motion to occur while limiting the impact of the superficial compression? If not, what would you attribute? the success of such prescriptions? Austin, this is a great great question um, because again the the behavior of synovial joints is is really important to understand especially with any exercise prescription but especially with with things like these because when this type of an activity is useful and it does have utility um, it's usually because of the exact reason that you state is that we're actually capturing relative motions so I think it's been misguided that there's strengthening going on and I won't deny that there's potential for hypertrophy and force production and things like that but I don't think that that these activities are remotely important for such things because from a load perspective um, there's not a whole lot of overloading going on here but what there is is a lot of coordinative activity that becomes incredibly useful to recapture normal synovial joint function. So so we need to start um, thinking about how that works. So let's just touch on that briefly. When we talk about any synovial joint, so synovial joints are are filled with synovial fluid, so we're just gonna call that water for the sake of argument and that water is incompressible. So for a a synovial joint to move through its normal excursion, I have to be able to create pressure in certain areas so the volume will shift in certain directions to allow movement to occur. So let's use an elbow as an example. So if I compress the front side of my elbow, I create pressure here, the volume moves to the back side of the elbow, and that allows me to bend the elbow. If I put pressure here, I extend the elbow, the volume goes this way, and I can extend the elbow. all synovial joints behave the same way. And so the, the muscles that are the closest to the joint, and they're actually attached to, to the joint capsules, um, they are the pressure manipulators. So they are the ones that, that are moving these, the, the fluid volumes that allows all of this motion to occur. So if we're doing rotator cuff strengthening exercises, and I, and I, I have to throw the air quotes in there because, again, I'm not, I'm not looking at it from that perspective at all what we're actually doing is restoring the ability to move the humerus relative to the scapula and the scapula relative to the humerus and the scapula relative to the thorax and any number of things um, that we have to talk about. So if we look at this from a load perspective, if you look at the typical prescriptions for, for uh, retraining the rotator cuff, as it is in the literature, everything is based on a very, very low load and so for very good reason, because if we use higher loads, we tend to reduce the relative motion capability. So now we're going to talk about the superficial musculature because as I ramp up the intensity of an activity based on load, I have to recruit the superficial musculature and that reduces the relative motion between segments. So anytime I have to increase force production to any significant degree, that's exactly what's going to happen. So now if my intent is to restore normal movement, I'm actually going to restrict that with, with using higher loads. I also have to consider the position of the joint. So if you look at the, again, we'll use rotator cuff literature because it, it, it's prolific. The position of the, of the humerus relative to the body matters in regards to um, what they would say would be EMG activity in, in the rotator cuff musculature. What, what we're going to make reference to is that we have to have a, this humerus in an appropriate position to restore expansion where we need expansion. So for external rotation capabilities I need to make sure that I can expand dorsal rostral. So if I pin my arm to my side I've immediately restricted my ability to expand that area. So I'm going to move it away from my side and typically what you'll see is they'll have some sort of bolster or roll underneath the arm as they're doing these these activities. And they say oh wow the EMG activity ramps up when the reality is, is oh I just created more concentric orientation to allow that relative motion to occur. So that's how we want to start to think about this. We think about muscle positions, so concentric to eccentric orientation, where do I need the the concentric orientation to be to allow the fluid volume to shift? So once again, if I'm trying to create more external rotation, I have to create compression on the posterior side of the shoulder so the volume shifts forward and allows that external rotation to occur axial position is gonna matter. So where do I position the the thorax to maximize these internal and external rotation capabilities? So if I am allowing someone to perform these activities in a compensatory strategy, so let's just say that I retracted both scapulae and I was performing external rotations, I've actually just compressed the area that I need to expand to allow that external rotation to occur. So I have now failed miserably um, based on my intent and, and so again, we have to take these positions into consideration. Finally, let's superimpose breathing on top of that. So if I hold my breath, I'm going to reduce my relative motions. Um, if I can't breathe through the exercise, um, I'm not going to be able to create the expansion and compression strategies that I may need to, to restore the ability to turn or rotate. And so again, we have to take all of these things into consideration. So. Again, I would I would caution everyone to look at these things as strengthening Um, I would look at them more for the ability to restore the capacity to execute relative motions because that's what's going to be most important when we're talking about restoring health. Later on, we can superimpose force production on top of anything, which is actually going to reduce those relative motions. But again, that's a totally different story. Austin, thank you so much for this question. I think it's a very useful question. Hope it's useful for you guys as well. Have a great Tuesday, and I will see you tomorrow good morning happy wednesday i have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect okay it's wednesday very exciting tomorrow's chips and salsa day so that's always something to look forward to also looking forward to the 6 a.m coffee and coaches conference call Uh, please join us for that post your coffee prep on instagram in your story, tag me. I'll share that for you, and we'll all have a great time talking about whatever we talk about on the conference call. Sometimes it's very technical. Sometimes we're just blowing off some steam, but it's always a great time, always great people, so so join us for that. On the Q&A today, I got a, Q, a question from my buddy, Charlie Reed. He of the perfect hair and uh, the amazing guitar playing ability, but also one of the better coaches around. So um, if you're in, in Charlie's area, it's R E. I-D, R-E-I-D, Charlie Reed, um, track him down and and do some work with him. Um, Great question though. Uh, That's going to require a bit of a demo that I'm not going to do today and then um, we'll probably follow this up with with something a little bit more accurate, but I wanted to talk about rotation because that's what Charlie's question is about because I think there's some, some misunderstandings about how rotation is actually produced, especially in sporting movements. Um, So Charlie says, I had a question regarding improving and restoring trunk rotation. He did a nice video on improving shoulder turn for sports that require a lot of rotational ability like tennis, golf, and baseball. My question is, do you have any suggestions for improving trunk rotation in the gym or at home that require new equipment? Absolutely. And so there's a lot of things that we can do to actually enhance the ability to, to rotate with our athletes and our regular clients because they have lost that ability in many cases as well but the thing that i want you to understand is is um, how this rotation is actually produced because i think it, it is grossly misunderstood people think that the two sides of the body are doing something something different and they think that the top and the bottom is doing something different so when we talk about the, the bottom we're talking about pelvis when we're talking about the top we're talking about thorax people seem to think that they're they're rotating in opposite directions um, if that was actually occurring, it would be, one, very, very uncomfortable. Number two, it would not look very fluid. And number three, it would, it would be very, very difficult to breathe. And, and so when you do have people that are producing sort of this counter-rotation between the pelvis and the thorax, you're going to hear them do some form of a v-salva or a breath hold to get there because you have to use superficial compressive strategies to, to produce that type of movement, and it's not very fluid. So when we're talking about athletics especially and producing rotation, let's talk about how this is actually done. So let me grab my incredibly high-tech homemade thorax here. So we got a representation of of a thorax and a spine. I might be looking down the line here. And so if I turn, if I turn my spine, you'll start to see the shape change here where I get this expansion on this, this right side and I get a compressive strategy on the left side. If I turn it in the opposite direction, you'll see that, that sort of flip-flop. And I think this is one of the reasons why people seem to think that, that these uh, expansion and compressive elements are, are creating an opposing strategy. Um, the reality is from a, a muscle orientation standpoint in a rotational sport like golf or tennis or baseball, more often than not, if they're not using a compensatory strategy, which some people will do then, if they're not using a compensatory strategy and they're creating this nice fluid rotation, both sides of, of the body are doing the same thing at the same time. The difference is going to be the use of an overcoming versus a yielding strategy. So, let me give you a for instance. So, if, I'm, if I am swinging a, a golf club, because I'm translating my weight shift from one foot to the other, it's actually representative of, of gait. And so, I don't have this pure turn where one side of the body is going forward, one side is going back. I'm actually translating. And and so as as I rotate, both sides, if we talk about the posterior aspect of the body, both sides are constantly going to push me towards the the one side. So if I'm a right-handed golfer and I'm taking my backswing towards my right side, the, the constant orientation on both sides posteriorly is pushing me to the right. The way that I produce the turn is I actually have a yielding strategy on the side to which I'm turning and an overcoming strategy on the side to which is pushing me towards that turn, and that's what produces the turn. So If I was coming straight at you, it would look like this. Both hands are still coming forward. One is on the delay, and so that produces what appears to be the turn. I would just reverse gears and I would go through that to to my follow through if I was a a right-handed golfer as I translate to my left leg. And so again, so what we have are these these alternating yielding and overcoming strategies which is what produces the turn. On the front side, obviously, I have an eccentric orientation and I still have the yielding and overcoming elements that, again, produce the turn. So if we're looking at a pelvis and I look at uh, the two ends of the golf swing, Um, So again, backswing to this side, follow through to this side. Those are both inhalation strategies. They're both going to produce external rotation through the pelvis. And so if if I was just to ER both sides of the pelvis equally, what I would see is this. But to produce the, the shift, I create a yielding strategy on the side to which I am turning. And so it looks more like that. So both sides are ER. Now... What I'm not doing is I'm not showing you the IR element in the middle. So here's exactly what happens. So I go ER with a yielding strategy on the right side if I'm taking my club into my right-handed backswing. As I come towards the middle, I will IR. This is where I produce my maximum force. So force is always produced in an internally rotated manner. And then I would shift back to my ER strategy where I have the yielding strategy on the, the lead leg there. Now... If I'm turning, obviously I have a foot position that's coming up from the ground, I've got a knee position that's coming up from the ground, I've got a, I've got a hip, I've got a femur turning into the acetalum, that also contributes to my to my production of rotation, so I'm not ignoring that. I just want you to see the representation of what's going on in the axial skeleton because it is both sides of the body doing the same thing from a muscle orientation standpoint. The difference is the delay that's produced by the yielding and overcoming strategies. So right away, we have elements of PNF that are in play to help us produce rotation. So those are your chopping and lifting patterns because what they're doing is that they're actually producing the concentric orientation on one side of the body the eccentric orientation on the other side of the body and then as you move through space you're producing these yielding and overcoming strategies and so that's why those contribute to to rotation any number of rolling patterns are going to be contributors to this ability to create rotation so all of your arm bar progressions, the simple log rolling that we're doing, um, the uh, unilateral shoulder rolls, etc., all contribute to these compressive and expansive strategies that we're going to use to, to produce turning. If we think about the pelvis as something as simple as, as working through our split stance activities, will actually help us produce this rotation. Um, so, again, we have a lot of things that we can utilize in the gym. Um, I will I promise I'll produce a, a video that will, will demo some of these things. So we do have a, a visual representation of how we would utilize these things. But uh, I just wanted to throw that out there and let you see that rotation is probably not what you think it is. Um, and again, both sides of the body are doing the same thing at the same time. We just have a little bit of delay between one side and the other. And that's why we see the rotation. So hopefully that's helpful for you. Have a great Wednesday, and I'll see you guys tomorrow. It is Thursday. Happy Thursday to everyone. I have my NeuroCoffee coffee in hand, and Dr. Mike, I think it's the best batch ever. It is perfect. Dr. Mike, how are you this morning? I'm doing wonderful. Yeah, you look good. Yeah. You look I'm good. Very good. Yeah, you need you need a uh, you need a t-shirt hoodie. Apparently. Have. I
1: know. I need a t-shirt hoodie, but I'm yeah. not gonna ask for one. That's pretty much
0: that would be the wrong thing to do rule
1: number, rule number one wrong thing to do we did some training where i was um it was really when you were i i'm gonna not it's not that you were, when you were first really getting into aerobic conditioning but i would say it was really when i first got from you an emphasis on aerobic conditioning both through circuit training and through cardiovascular work and how you're really using that to build aerobic bases in your athletes
0: Okay.
1: and so I was just wondering, like, how your thinking on that has evolved over time. I'm,
0: I'm, I am trying to become the master of simplification, mm-hmm. and so I am looking at, I am looking at everything from the perspective of, of what do you need to be able to do, um, so from an athletic standpoint, I am just looking at what what is actually the the where do I have to get these people, um, like from an app, you know, from the, the game related stuff. So um, rather than looking at it from um, trying to affect one element of of the energy systems as we would look at them, right? So they break up into the into the, the three you know primary contributors. And I don't do that anymore. I just look at, I look at the exposure of, of intensity, duration, and and all, all the factors that, that I can, I can access uh, to what an athlete may be exposed to. And I move them towards that, um, with the full understanding that if I got a guy that comes in with like a ridiculously high heart rate, like he's sitting there with a resting heart rate at 75 or something like that, I know full well that, that he's he's not going to respond well to a higher intensity output right away. Or he will, and it will top out very, very quickly. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, uh, so in those cases, you have to start farther away from where they're going to end up, right? Because there, there probably is an element of, of uh, construction in regards to the Stuff that produces the energy. So I don't. I don't want to talk about mitochondria, you know, specifically, because I don't. I've never measured the number of mitochondria in anyone's muscle cells, so I really don't know. But that, that, I do have that understanding that that there will be enzymes that have to be produced. There is, there is machinery that needs to be produced that that may be supportive of that. There's also influences, you know, from a neural aspect that that. Um, are in effect if i do have somebody that comes in with a high resting heart rate these are the things that i can't measure so i have to look at this from the perspective of okay what do they actually need and what do they present and then how do i close that gap so it's a lot like it's not like writing any other program it's like what what is your foundational exposure my assumption is that if somebody comes in with a high resting heart rate that they have not had any exposure to a long duration endurance type of program that would actually provide a foundation for me to build something upon. So if somebody comes in and they've never strength trained before, you got to teach them at one, you gotta teach them how to do exercises and then you got to establish some foundation of of physical capacity that you can superimpose intensity upon. So it's the same rules. Um, and so um, I don't well, I don't change that. It's just where the the means would be the difference. Right? Whereas somebody comes in for drink training, obviously we're going to do something that's going to be a bit more resistant, whereas somebody comes in for an endurance-based thing, obviously it's a lower, lower intensity of output per unit of time, and so, so your means are different. So then we, we drift you towards something that is um, less discrete of a task and more of a continuous activity. So again, that, that, that would be my perspective, whereas probably back, what, 13 years ago? I was probably thinking that, oh, I'm affecting this. Whereas I, I have that understanding, like I, I, I have an understanding of the energy systems, but the reality is it's like I have no idea when you're doing using one or the other at any moment in time. And if I can't tell that, then why should I worry about it in regards to how I'm writing the program? What I want is an outcome. And so I use the same, I use the same structure that I would in the purple room within a session. So when, within a session, I test something, I intervene, and then I retest to make sure that I'm on the right track, right? So with an endurance-based program or, or a conditioning program, I test, I intervene based on those tests, right? So I, I structure the workout, and then I can't, I can't do it as acutely as I do in the purple room because the changes might take a little bit longer. Again, because if, we have, if, if machinery has to be constructed and adaptations have to be promoted, that might take a, a couple of weeks to even notice any difference. And so my my testing is spaced out a little bit more, but it's, it's literally the same process because I can't project 12 weeks out what the outcome's gonna be, but I can see make sure that I'm on track to get you to where I think you need to be. So I just have to have a beginning point and an end point and close the gaps, just like I do with any other aspect of the program. I don't look at it any differently. Than, than anything else that I do. And, that, and and Adam could probably speak to this this quite well, because um, I, I don't know how much control you have over, like, practice and things like that, because I don't think that. Do, do you control any of that?
1: Sometimes when it comes to a rehab case. Mike, the, the thing I would say, too, Mike, is there's a lot of literature out there now, almost in every sport, that looks at game analysis and physical outputs, too. So you could, like, kind of, depending on the sport you're in, kind of see what some normative data is and it might not necessarily apply to exactly to your athlete but it might be a decent starting point it's like when i was in soccer like that's when the gps stuff was taking off so like a decade ago you could really see what each league around the world what each position was expected to do in a 90-minute game same thing in basketball now they're Mm -hmm. starting to do that too i know lacrosse has some football has some so even if it's not specific to the athlete like yeah it'd be nice to see okay what's your X amount of sprints or X amount of change of directions you do in a game, and that's your starting point for what you're trying to get to, like Bill was saying. What's the end goal? But if you need some sort of like sport-specific terminal task, that's where like as soon as you ask that question, that was the first thing that went through my mind. Like, ooh, like what sport is it? What's the literature say now? Because they just they've just so much on it now because of technology boom. They're like, no. yeah, yeah, a lot of the
0: field sports. Yeah information falls into, into a very similar category. <clears throat> like you can even get information on Irish hurling. How about that? It's like, we don't, we didn't have work to risk ratios on the NFL, but, but we have Irish hurling <laughs> information available to us, which is, you know, but it's still useful because again, if you look at, if you compare soccer and, and, and the hurling information, what else do we have? They, they've got some, they got some stuff on uh, uh, rugby. Um, Aussie, Aussie rules football. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but a lot of the field sports tend to start to look, look very, very similarly. I mean, but they'll, they'll look at like, how long were you walking? How long are you standing? What's, the, mm. longest, what's the, the longest sprint that you do at, at, at such and such intensity? Like they have that kind of information now, which is really, really helpful to determine that. Like, okay, here's what your needs might be. Do you usually use like a, like a similar
1: type of thought process in regards to return to sport following injury and surgery?
0: You know, once you're past that initial, that rehab stage and it's just like a reconditioning element. It's just like, okay, what's your fitness level now? What do I need to prepare you for? And again, Adam can speak to this like with, with you know great accuracy because that's what he does for a living. It's like you're in this constant state of, of reconstruction and, and restoration of fitness, right?
1: Once you get past that initial, like we refer to as like the health and therapy phase, we're really trying to manage the acute infarct, whatever tissue was affected if it's an ankle sprain, you're trying to manage that acute swelling, that acute pain. And you can we use biological timelines as like a reference source, but then we also use a criterion model relative to like basic strength and range of motion. And once you get through that phase, like to Bill's point, it's it's just training and understanding where you're at and what you have to get to. And you kind of look at also too, there's a lot of literature from like Iserin or some of the Russian, the Russian literature, as far as like rate of decay of athletic qualities. So for example, you tend to see a, quick, a quicker drop off in your high intensity efforts of, in the context of basketball, sprinting and jump output, because those are more quote unquote CNS like short lived outputs, maximal outputs. Whereas like true like aerobic fitness that is more structural based, more like mitochondrial cardiac changes, those take longer because they true are true structural changes. So, what you're trying to understand is how long were you. Unable to load or challenge those systems, and then those are probably the first ones you want to hit. And then if it's more of a longer term one, maybe you try and go the aerobic route too. But once you get past that pain and health phase, it really is training at that point. Like there's a phrase out there training equals rehab, agree and disagree. It is valuable in that context, but it's not the same thing early on. So, like they are different, but they do get to a point where your rehab, like our strength and conditioning coach says, at some point your rehab should look like training because ultimately you have to get back to doing the things you have to get back to.
0: Yeah, I think it's a matter of, of are you trying to expand adaptability for health purposes or are you narrowing uh, capabilities, narrowing adaptations for, to reach a level of performance because there, and you and I have had this conversation how many times now that, that they are not the same. You know, I'm, I'm actually reducing the, the broad scope adaptability of, of the system to reach a level of performance. Because uh, you, you have phenite you have resources that are available. I can't distribute them um, broadly under all circumstances. But to capture health, you do need to have that, that, broader, that broader element intact, right? Because you don't know, you never know how many systems are going to be affected. And so you have to try to get as many as you can. Cool.
1: Bill, I got a question for
0: you. I, got, I have an answer, hopefully.
1: We've been talking a lot about feet internally around here. Just some observations we've noticed. Uh-huh. And even look, you Google, you Google some athletes' feet, and you see a lot of the most, the most athletic NBA ballers, they have very, very flat feet, toe valgus bilaterally, collapsed arch, just, just the whole nines. Yeah. Versus, the, also we see the large complete opposite spectrum the very high arch pes cave is very rigid foot. Yeah. And we've started to notice, ob- again, ob- observing, those that tend to be very, very flat collapsed feet also tend to have a lot of bounce and are considered like your, your high flyers, your dunkers. And then some of the rigid ones we've seen are just kind of stuck in the mud a little bit. Or, yeah.
0: You want to talk about that? Yeah, let's This is actually really cool. Hang on, let me get my foot. All right. Here we go, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pin my my screen because I want it to be big on video. Okay. Can everybody see my foot? Okay. So you got, you got three feet to worry about. Okay. You've got an early propulsive foot. So the early propulsive foot is what people would consider this, this this supinated looking foot, right? So the tibia is behind the ankle and I got I got the, the big arch, okay? And then my big toe kinda wants to touch the ground, but it's probably not really good at touching the ground. I might have to plan to flex it a little bit to get it to the ground. So that's, that's an early propulsive foot, okay? So under these circumstances, I got a talus and I got a calcaneus that are moving together. As that heel breaks the ground, I am producing the maximum amount of force into the ground, okay? Follow so far. So that's an important point. Then the tibia keeps going forward, and it lifts up my heel, and I go up over the foot. And that is, again, no relative motion between the calcaneus and the talus. That supinated foot and that supinated foot are not the same. So late propulsive foot is not the same as an early propulsive foot even though they've both been termed a supinated foot. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and mm, it is perfect. It is a -A beautiful day. So I'm excited about that. It's Friday. We're going to talk baseball uh, later today. Not this morning, but later today. Um, So that's going to be fun. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, today's question comes from the IFSPT fellow again, Austin. So so this is why you this is why you teach, man. It's like you get really, really good questions. It really really challenges thinking. And this was a really really good one. For those of you that really, really want to get better at what you do. Excuse me. <clears throat> this is gonna be a really really powerful, a really powerful question to, to look at because it's all about process and it's our process that's going to allow us to improve. This is not about um, understanding like what we think is anatomy or how it interacts and things like that. This is about the process of actually getting better. So this is the foundation. And so that's why I really like this question. So Austin says, you mentioned previous posts uh, that you should question yourself not only when you fail, but also when you succeed. What are some of the questions you've recently asked yourself regarding the success you've had in working with your model. And so so again, the, the thing that I want you to recognize is that you have to have a process, regardless of the outcome. If you really, really want to learn and really want to get better at what you do, you have to continue to question things. The reason that you want to continue to question things, even when you're successful, is because everything that you do and everything you see is your interpretation of reality. So it's not reality. And so there's always going to be a gap, which means that within that gap is where we can improve. And so if we can push ourselves forward to see more of what we think reality is and expand our understanding of what the possibilities are, this is what's going to help us to to progress and evolve. And so, one of the first things you would do, regardless of the outcome, whether you, whether you consider your outcome a success or a failure, is what relationships did I think were apparent? So, what what did I see? What did I think I was measuring? What did I think those relationships represented? Because I have to have a, a framework or an understanding of what I think is going on. And the more refined that that. Uh, perspective of those relationships are the better my starting point in this process. So then based on my outcome measures and my intent when I when I intervene, it's like did I did I interpret those measures correctly? So here's the power of hindsight. So I have a before representation and I have an after representation. And so if I intervened as I as I intended and I got a correct outcome or the intended Favorable outcome, um, I can still look back and, and try to interpret those those measures. So a lot of times you figure you figure these things out in hindsight. So I think I have a representation, I see what I ended up with, and then I work backwards. Because maybe not everything went exactly as planned. So so why not? Why, why didn't it go exactly as planned? So maybe that it's favorable for the client. So the client feels better, they move better, they accomplish some sort of task. But the reality is, is if I I really, really objectively look at my measures, I can look backwards and I I can say, okay, was my interpretation correct? The more often you can do that, the more you're capable of narrowing what the probabilities will be the next time. And so, again, we we use every opportunity of of our interactions with a client or a patient or or whomever it may be as an opportunity for next. Um, Now. Again, because we have this gap between our perceptions and reality, we have to ask ourselves, what else could it have been? So if I think I know something, is there something else that that it could have been? What were the possibilities? Are there other possibilities? So now we have to think about, okay, as I study these things or as I'm trying to learn something new, um, where else can I look for possibilities? Where else can I look for understanding? Where else can I look to gain a perspective on these relationships? And so now this is where education comes in. and this is where they fail because what what education has become is is teaching a bunch of concepts without without a coherent, model to to represent things. And so, you know, when you go through PT school for instance, they teach you embryology. Well, why do they teach you embryology? They never told you why it's important. And the reality is, it's like that's where you came from. And so when you start to see these, how these relationships evolved through development, you start to see how they are represented in, in this fully grown human that, that we're interacting with. And then it becomes very, very powerful. And so that's why we have to, to go back and we have to start looking at those things. We look at comparative anatomy between animals because other animals behave very similarly to how we do. So how does it work for them? And then we can start to get ideas of how it might, might work for us. Finally, we we start to say, okay, does this make sense? Is it coherent with what my understanding is? And so think, think about this for a second. We have universal principles that are applied everywhere, right? So I talk about compression and expansion a lot, the reason being is because it is a universal principle. So when I say universal, I am talking about the the universe in and of itself. So so we talking about compression, and expansion. So that's what the universe does. It, it you know it it expands. So space expands and compresses. Time compresses and expands. And light compresses and expand expands. So we have to follow those rules too. So wherever we have some some physical principle in the universe, we need to behave with, within that rule as well. And so is it coherent? Is it consistent with with, with the, um, the those rules? The rules are very, very simple. When we look at the complexity of a human, we can get distracted by sharp shiny objects all over the place. But the reality is, is if we can start to simplify things, we look at the simplest of rules, that is how complexity evolves. So if you look at things like um, Conway's Game of Life, and you can look that up um um on google and then go play with it a little bit and what you'll see is there's there's three simple rules that this game is based on but you'll see the most amazing complex structures that evolve from those those simple rules we are the same and so again if i if i see something or i see information presented that requires that i have to learn another rule i immediately question it because again i think we're we're based on very very simple rules very simple processes Um, that are just repeated and because of the new starting conditions that's what evolves the complexity um, that we see. From a longer term perspective where we're out of a a specific context there's some broader questions that you may want to ask. So it's like why why did other models demonstrate success? Because again it's all about perspective and so when we think about um, comparing what we do with our model to other perspectives Things like okay, we we talked earlier this week about about rotator cuff strengthening versus recapturing relative motions. Like, so so some of those things actually actually do work in the clinic, but it's just a matter of perspective. Where you say, oh, you're strengthening a your rotator cuff, and I say, oh, you're just restoring the the relative motion in those relationships that allow us to move more effectively. So so again, both models will work, but the perspectives are different. So so which which one of those? Um, can I apply consistently and demonstrate greater levels of success in more context? Um, stretching versus e orientation might might be another one um, that, that we would consider to, to have, have different perspectives. So, so again, I want you to start to think about evolving your process and looking at these things um, the, the same, regardless of the outcome, whether it is favorable or un, unfavorable. This is how you're going to get better, is to continue to question things. And, and it is a struggle. It is work. Because when you're successful, you want to kind of pat yourself on the back and say, yeah, I did great. I was, I was awesome today. But the reality is, if we really, really want to get better, we have to continue to question everything that we do because we're never seeing reality. But we can start to close that gap with knowing that the gap is always going to be there. So I hope that helps a little bit. I hope uh, it is one thing that will drive you to improve. Um, And again, we all have to get better. We all have to have a process. Have a great Friday. Have a great weekend. I will see you on Monday.